Hello, ladies and gentlemen, we're live. So this is your your first podcast, or your uh, am, I, am I your tenth uh, guest, like everybody well, else? Well, actually, this is the third podcast I'm recording. I don't even the know. Third. If yeah, I don't even know if this is gonna see the light of day or something. But I figure that you know, man, I, I just start recording and worrying worry about other things afterwards. You know. So I'm your third choice trooper, not your first. <laughs> well, I said this is the third recording. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Okay. I've, I've learned that about podcasters. I'm never anyone's first choice. Just, uh, you know, the backup. It's okay, though. <laughs> I don't feel too bad. How are you? So, so you're out in the UK. Uh, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm here in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you were, you know, to, well, you were a big listener of like the Quinn Uncensored back in the day. I know that. And yeah. uh, I met you. I met you when I went out to the UK a couple of years ago and had one of the weirdest thing, your weirdest exchanges of my life where we actually went out and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and did a, did a, did an exchange with, I don't know, a heroin addict or something like that. <laughs> he wasn't a fucking heroin addict. dude. He was, he was like twitchy and like, I thought I was going to die, but we sat in the car cause like the block, the, it was the block times were getting a little bit high. So he sat in the car with this guy for like 40 minutes. What's his deal? He's not a heroin addict, you're sure? Dude, let's bring some context. We're, we're going to get <laughs> Let's bring some context. So for the people who don't know you, well, they shouldn't listen to this fucking show, first of all. But you're John Smith. Uh, you used to be one of the guys in the Bitcoin Uncensored. And, you know, like Bitcoin Uncensored for me, that was that was a really big thing, dude, because I, uh, I mean, I, I, I lived that show. I fucking lived it. You and Chris were my idols. Like, you guys were really my idols. I wanted to be able to understand the world and frame it in the same way you do it. And oh. I thought if I would be able to do that, like, that's it, I've made it, you know? No. Oh. <laughs> I live. And so, so they're pretty much what was the show. There's two guys from Fort Lauderdale who mm -hmm. bring people who do heroin on the show. And in yeah. the meantime, they talk about interesting dynamics and, uh, mark and efficient markets and what Bitcoin is really used for. And funny enough, this was probably the best piece of content that was ever created. And it was fun. It was incredible. And that I'm changed glad my you liked it. Wow. It changed my life. Wow. Really it changed the way I really viewed the world. It had that big of an impact. So when I, when I die, uh, <laughs> can I count on you being at my funeral? Well, look, I said you used to be my idols now. <laughs> use it, to use an expression from the show, I'm at a creepish table right now. So, you know. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, I'm, tr I'm just trying to collect people for my funeral. So like, I just figured my parents would want to be like, maybe they'd be proud of me, but I guess that assumes that I die before they do. So that's not a great assumption. Do you think uh, what's that? Do you think Chris is going to be at your funeral? Oh man. <laughs> uh, hopefully he dies first. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, it just, it depends on, on who dies first, I guess uh, that that'll be a decision made up by that guy. It would, yeah, I suppose. I suppose he'd be at my funeral. It's uh, he can celebrate my death. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's stop making let's let's stop making things a little a bit uh, less more morbid. morbid. A little morbid. Well, you know, like I I really learned a lot. You know what was the most valuable lesson I learned from that show, and and it was this whole thing like, well, if you act like you're not like markets are efficient, which is what Eugene Finley also says. You're just gonna get better results. You're gonna end up like navigating through whatever things you're doing and you're gonna get oh, yeah. better results. And 
there's like a few a few things like this that I want to go through, you know, and talk about. And I would I'm probably also gonna say how they how they they help me, you know. Because you know what, man, like being a Bitcoiner means a lot to me. Like I've never known anything except Bitcoining. And uh, I don't like it when people on fucking Twitter right now frame being a Bitcoiner as 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 fucking wanting a node and being very technical. It wasn't ever about that. It was about right. fucking being hardcore and being a practical person and you know doing real stuff. And everyone's just fucking mad on Twitter. So fuck yeah. the people on Twitter. Fuck the people on Twitter. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, I, I always markets are very efficient. Generally, I think. Um, and I get a lot of debate about that, but my results tend to be better. I think Bitcoiners have a very skewed understanding of what market efficiency means because all of us came here and made a really stupid bet on this, you know, cryptocurrency thing. And we did it for varying reasons, most of us ideological, and it worked out. It worked out for a lot of us. And uh, this is what I would say, like on the show is 16 year olds are dumb. They're going to give their money back because uh, we spend our money on Lamborghinis and, you know, Playstations. So if, if you make, you know, a billion dollars when you're 16, you're going to have, you know, $10,000 when you die. So I'm not too worried about like wealth distribution in Bitcoin, which, you know, everyone talks about how these, a lot of these wallets have, uh, you know, a huge majority of the coins. I don't care. They're going to, they're going to spend so much money chasing dragons, thinking that they're, uh, they're absolutely the smartest people on earth. Oh, I've seen that a lot. You know, I've seen a lot of, I know a lot of people from the Ove, you know, that, um, they they didn't realize they think they were really smart and they weren't i mean they're smart people they're really smart guys but they they weren't smart about everything else in life and now they presume they're doing that and they just don't want to accept like hey i'm not the smartest guy around i'm smart with something you know well that's the reason for like rule number one and rule number two of the show you're an idiot and i'm an idiot because like if you can understand how stupid humanity is um you're going to be far better off right like if you can at least if you can acknowledge that you are uh, you are that that plumbing the depths of your own knowledge is, is going to be a very shallow well, um, you're going to be a much better off person. And then it, the other, I mean, the first realization and every like this is why we had rules and and they're ordered because everyone comes to these realizations like in order. So you know, rule number one is you're an idiot, and everyone learns that rule because like you're in school and like I'm smarter than my teachers, you know. And uh, everyone thinks that. Everyone thinks they're smarter than their teachers. So the, the teachers are idiots. So you're an idiot. You're dumb. And then at some point, like as you, uh, you know, so, so well, when you're plumbing the depths of other people's knowledge, you get to the bottom of that well pretty quick and you realize how stupid they are. And then at some point you turn inward if you're in any way sort of introspective and you plumb the depths of your knowledge and you realize how shallow you are. And once you realize how shallow you are, you realize that you're a lot like the people that you thought were really dumb. And that's yeah. a really good place to be. It's it's like much more humbling and uh, kind of a, a Zen place to live. Uh, same with the markets are efficient. Like it's very Zen to know that you're not in control. Well, if I remember correctly, the rules are rule number one, you're an idiot. Rule number yeah. two, I'm an idiot. Rule number three, markets are efficient or nobody knows anything. And we're all getting too pretentious about it, but this is somehow following the hero's journey and you are the hero and you have to mature yourself, right? You have to go through all these stages. And then when you evolve, you're like, okay, now I get it. Well, when you realize everyone's an idiot, you realize that not every, like nobody's in control of this thing. And like, uh, it gives you like, it, like that's how you end up with like markets are efficient. The, the world is run by morons, including me, including you. And, uh, you know, 
if it's run by morons, then how can anyone make the best decision? And for some fucking reason, the wisdom of crowds seems to lead to these really decent, good things, uh, these good outcomes. And I don't know why, but that's just the case. And I've tested this. You know, have you ever done that uh, that jelly bean game where someone puts a jar filled with jelly beans in? It's the one we're trying to get people to guess and because you're going to have a lot of people. But here's the thing with wisdom of crowds, right? As far as I would understand wisdom of crowds is that uh, let's say right now we're trying to find someone who plays guitar, right? That's a bad Let's stick with this example, right? If you have a big enough crowd, you're going to have someone who's going to be really better at counting beans for whatever reason. So I guess the bigger the crowd it is, the bigger is the chance that you're going to find that one specialized person or talented person that's going to do this. It's, it's actually, it's actually weirder than that. It's, it's that, you know, in a world of randomness, uh, people make better guesses when you kind of average all of the random guesses out. Um, so like if you but want to win that, to me. well, I'll, I'll put it this. If you want to win the jelly bean game, there's a really simple way to do it. Sit at the table and watch 30 people submit their answers, take all of their answers, average them, and you'll probably win. But let me give you an example right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's say, right, let me give you a counter example of that. Let's say uh, I train myself. Let's say I train myself to, um, to, to count jelly beans for whatever reason. Okay. And I'm you a train yourself to, okay. You're an expert an jelly expert. bean counter. You're I'm the best. Yeah, yeah. best. Now, when you're going to do this and you're going to put people and you're going to compare me to the other people, there's a really low chance you're going to find someone who's going to be better than you, right? Even okay. if you have a big, even if you have a crowd of a million people, there's a really low likelihood that they're going to be better than you. It's the same with okay. like, um, I don't know, let's say with playing guitar. It's like you could take the wisdom of the crowd. But if I play guitar for like 20 years, dude, it's hard to, to, to beat the one specialized individual. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, no, so you're talking about the difference. There's two kinds of risks that you're talking about. One is called systematic risk and one's called, one is called uh, systemic risk. Um, systematic risk is risk that you can diversify away. All right. And systemic risk is the risk that is undiversifiable. So, for example, uh, if you bet, if you are the best jelly bean counter there is, you've developed a special technique, you know how to do it. You're betting on your own abilities to have specialized knowledge in the art of jelly bean counting. And uh, you are going to um, you're going to bet on that and you're going to you know try it and see if you can win. And maybe you win. 64% of the time, or let's, let's say, let's say you win 52% of the time or something like that. And the other side of it is, uh, most people are not specialized jelly bean counters. So like, if I want to, if I want to win a huge margin of the time, a huge, um, you know, majority of the time for me, I can get pretty close to your specialized knowledge and I can win maybe 48% of the time by taking the aggregate information of the market, averaging it together and betting on that. Right. So if I sit there and I count 30 people's guesses and then I average them and, and make that my guess, I'm going to be very, very, very close to the number of jelly beans inside of that uh, inside of that jar. Now, you might be you might be closer by one or two. Right. One or two percent even. And uh, I'm going to be very, very close. I'll be the second closest person 90 percent of the time or something like that. There's some some large, you know, large portion of the time. I'll either well, be first or second place. I think we could have them. Um... A, a let's call this a jelly bean coefficient, and I think depending on different things, <laughs> right? Uh, on different things, you're gonna end up having a different jelly bean coefficient. Like playing guitar, 
recording podcasts, uh, shooting porn. I don't know. There's going to be different degrees to this. But and what I was trying to, to bring forward was that actually I think, and I may be wrong, that there is the, 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 the different, the delta between the expert and the crowd. It's a few orders of magnitude or something. And they're trying to tell me like, it's not actually that bad. Well, it could be a few orders of magnitude, but it probably isn't. It depends. I mean, like, think about it this way. Um, the, the, the only time, like market efficiency theory would say that the only time that you can really beat the market on average is when you have specialized knowledge of the yeah. market, right? So like, for example, if you happen to know more about oil than anybody else, and uh, let's say you sit outside of the, the biggest uh, Aramco oil filling facility, I don't know anything about oil, um, and you literally count the trucks that come in and you sit there and you do the math and you're like, okay, um, they've, they've, they, they've left or maybe trucks that leave. Uh, something like 4 million gallons of oil have left that facility today. Uh, we know that 3 million left yesterday, 3.8 the day before. So like you have a like pretty exact count of how much oil has left that facility and you're making a bet. You're like, you know what? The market is saying that they're going to make this much, but I know that they've shipped this much oil. I know that if, you know, they sell 90% of it or whatever it is, uh, they're going to make 30% more than the market. Right. So you can, I mean, it, it's not always that uh, you are going to have more knowledge than the market or that, that it's, it's, it's an order of magnitude or not an order of magnitude. It depends on the knowledge. And it depends on how much more uh, you know than the market, right? Like if you know, for example, uh, that uh, that they're going to make 30% more than projected expectations, you're going to make a shit ton more money uh, than than anyone else on that bet, right? But that's one bet. And that's yeah. the same thing. Like people do that same thing with like managers. If you're, if you're an amazing manager and someone can make that bet on you, you can make that bet on yourself. You are likely to make an order of magnitude more than other people. That's called a job. To be honest, a job is a job is specialization, and uh, yeah. a lot of people make very interesting mistakes because if you if you don't assume that markets are efficient and you take a job, let's say you're very good at your job, right, and you're making the company money, so a lot of companies are going to offer stock options. People take these stock options and they sit on them because they believe that like that company is going to do really well. Well, the company is going to probably trend towards being about as good, if not a little worse, than the market as a whole. And unless you are the deciding factor in that company, you don't really have any specialized knowledge about how that company is going to do quarter to quarter. So what you're generally better off doing is disaggregating your risk from the risk of the company. Because like, let's say you lose your job one day and the company tanks, or let's say that the company goes you know, bankrupt and that's what causes you to lose your job. Well, now in one fell swoop, you lost your income and you lost all of the money in your stocks. So like there's, there's a sort of problematic risk assessment people take in their everyday life where they don't do things like diversify risk away. And the result of it is that they, they, they leave themselves open to sort, sorts of risks that they think never could happen or shouldn't happen or that will never affect them. But regarding the diversifying thing, I, I, you know, and I don't think this is what you're talking about, but there are a lot of people saying that you don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Or I think even Chris was saying this recently on Twitter, like you should have, um, uh, what is this thing called again in English? The, something that, that has uh, an index. You should follow an index, right? Like, don't try to do anything. Correct. But I, I would want to come back to this. Don't keep all your eggs in one basket. But if you're a basket maker, if you happen to be a basket maker, right, then fucking yeah. pick the one basket. And I feel that's that's kind of getting back to the first conversation. Well, that's kind of what we did as Bitcoiners to some degree. We, we well, you're not Satoshi. You didn't make the basket, but you were close enough to that compared to the rest of the world. So it had specialized information. So in that moment, it did make sense to not diversify. Right? 
Not really. I mean, like I wasn't, okay. I mean, the, well, the basket makers are the, you know, the market makers and there are people that were market makers in this industry and they weren't me. They were a lot of other people and uh, they, the, you're right. Those people do have specialized knowledge of the market, but those are people like Mike Komoransky at Chamberlain uh, Mining and a bunch of others and even miners, right? That's a different business entirely, but there's market makers in every, in every group. And uh, there's people that hold. And the truth is that when we were early on and we have very little money's worth of Bitcoin because um, Bitcoin was worth nothing, then, you know, uh, we weren't necessarily market makers. And I don't know that we ever dreamed of it. And I wouldn't even know how to be a market maker. I, I, I wasn't referring necessarily to, to the I wasn't referring to the market as uh, I was talking more abstractly. I wasn't saying market as in like well, you go on you go and you put your order there. But, I was but just my saying, point is, I don't I don't know if you have any extra knowledge about what's happening here in Bitcoin necessarily, other than you might be making the bet that Bitcoin is going to be the one that's going to work. Right. Um, meanwhile, like there's a lot of people, I think Chris among them, who are doing uh, indexing their coins into like lots of different cryptos. Um, and I know why they do that. It makes it makes sense from uh, from a risk perspective because indexing means that you're rebalancing uh, pretty regularly, and when you rebalance, that means that you're buying low and selling high of things, and uh, that that can work. Um, I don't know that I I trust those other currencies to not be scams. So I wonder what happens when all of a sudden liquidity dries up in them. And they all go to zero at the same time. Um, if that would, if that were possible, I do think that that's a weird inherent risk in, uh, in in the indexing strategy here, because like you're you're trying to capture some momentum with indexing, and if you're you, you can't index every hour, you're usually indexing once a quarter or you know twice a year or once a year or only when the position is like ten percent out of line or something like that, and uh, and that's that's something that if you're not doing, you're not capturing the momentum. So. You know, people that are indexing and like you know trading every day, they're you know maybe they're they're doing uh, they're they're doing better than maybe just Bitcoin alone. I don't know how long that will last. It might last forever. Um, it might not. But it indexing. There's a reason it's a good strategy, and it's because of the rebalancing. That's a big part of it. You can earn on something that is you know essentially a, an investment that goes flat. You can earn quite a nice return by rebalancing. I mean, if you wanted to do tether. Um, or the one dollar coins, you can index a lot of the risk away for these dollar uh, these dollar coins. What you would do is you would hold you would hold some proportion of money in each one, and then you would rebalance based on like when Tether goes to ninety six cents, you might buy Gemini, um, or actually if it went to ninety six cents, you you might sell some Gemini to like buy yeah. if it were a dollar four, you might buy some Tether, and then eventually Tether is going to go to a dollar four and Gemini to ninety six, and then you're going to sell some Tether and go to Gemini. Over time. As those fluctuate around a dollar, you actually make money on the volatility, and that's that's why indexing is such an interesting strategy because indexing allows you to make money when you're going up. It allows you to uh, to save a little bit when you're lose when like markets are going down, and it allows you. And the rebalancing effect allows you to basically increase your holdings, whatever it is that you're trying to acquire. Yeah, well, you know what? Here's the thing, though, because it really depends on what you want to do. Do you want to accumulate more fiat or do you want to accumulate more Bitcoin, right? This is another thing that you, what would you want to do and how would you go uh, about that? And uh, I, I know Chris tweeted, at, 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 I think it was a year ago or something. I'm really curious how well that, that, is, that well is doing. But most of the people that I know and what I'm interested in is accumulating more Bitcoins. And I, I don't think that would be necessarily the best strategy. But anyway, let's get back on track. So the first rule is I'm an idiot. The first, second rule is you're an idiot. The first yeah. rule is market efficient. And dude, like... What you were saying about this market's efficient, like this always helped me to, I, I was, you know what, 
as long as my business was doing was existed, I was always somehow positioned in a very good position. And I think it was just because I, I was seeing things like this. And the, the fourth rule is um, you don't want this or you wanted this. You don't you don't want that. Well, well I have to, I have the other option also. Of it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you go we go in a pub right now, right? Yeah. And someone spills a drink on you. I'm gonna go like fucking John said you wanted this. And you're going to be like, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Because you expose yourself to a situation where there's a likelihood of people spilling drinks on you in a pub or something like that. That could be true. That's true. That's true. That's not That's not wrong. Um, that is, I guess, an extension of the principle that you don't want that. The way that I describe it is this. Like someone comes up to me like, oh, you know, Ralph Ellison is so lucky he has a yacht. I want a yacht. And they're like, oh, yeah, you want a $100,000 or $200,000 a year uh, expense. You want to have a staff that you have to manage. Uh, you, you want like you know, um, to have to make sure that your jet ski is clean and to make sure the deck is swabbed and everything else. No, 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 I don't want that. I want a yacht. They're like, well, that is what a yacht is. That's having a yacht. Like the things that come along with the things people say they want are not necessarily the things that they, they actually want. And uh, it's it's the kid syndrome of I want a dog. And, and the parents say, well, if you get a dog, you're going to have to walk it every week. And the kid gets it and he doesn't walk it. Like, see, you didn't, you didn't want the dog. You wanted the like, you wanted part of the dog. You wanted the companionship and the like playfulness of the dog, but you didn't want to do all the things that having a dog actually requires. Um, and that's what that is. Are these called externalities? They're, well, uh, would they be externalities? Uh, not really. I mean, externalities would be something that the market doesn't necessarily, it can't necessarily price in. Um, it's, it's not so much that is, is more of like the, the, the caveat emptor of like requesting things. You don't know necessarily what you're getting when you when you get it. You know, like for example, maybe you want a billion dollars in Bitcoin. Well, you want that today, but then when uh, robber barons show up and break your kneecaps to get your private keys, you realize pretty quick you didn't really want that. Um, you know, and, or that there's things that you wanted more than that. And it's it's sort of like this Maslow hierarchy. What do you want more than that? And there's a lot of things that you want more than a yacht. And I can tell you what you want more than a yacht because you're buying them. You want a PS4 more than a yacht. You want a television more than a yacht. You want a computer more than you want a yacht. Um, there's a lot of things you want more than you want a yacht. You want lunch more than you want a yacht. Yeah. And and those you know those are like it's not that you can't ever have a yacht, but like you're gonna find that in order to have a yacht, you, what you're actually saying is I want to be worth you know twenty three billion dollars, right? And maybe you don't even want that. Like as a Bitcoiner being worth twenty three billion dollars, it sounds like a dangerous game, especially if this. If you're one of the uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin people, <laughs> in which case you're holding it in your underwear drawer. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's an interesting point. Um, I guess the best thing you could do as a Bitcoiner would be no one should know you have Bitcoin, right? That would be the best uh, thing. Yeah, you could that would be that would be great, right? And everyone made the mistake of not, you know, most people made the mistake of not allowing that to happen, right? People uh, became public and, and talked and did podcasts and whatnot, and now everybody knows they have some Bitcoin. And uh, yeah. that that can be dangerous. I I think um, I don't remember where I wrote where I read this, but it was an article like privacy is going to be expensive, right? So you have to afford privacy. Like like what do I mean by that? Like if you want to make more Bitcoin, you're gonna have to like trade off your your privacy because it's it's infinitely harder to make Bitcoin if you're private, right? If you ask me. Um, I think it probably depends on what kind of job you want. There are some jobs that specialize. In your possibility of privacy, programming might be one of them. For example, like you could yeah, I don't believe in jobs. By the way, I don't believe in jobs. I don't believe oh, in a job. <laughs> well, maybe not a nine to five, but like doing work for other people. There are certain things that you could do. I mean, you you've hired yourself. You've given yourself a job. 
um, your podcasting. Now you want to try to uh, make some money on that, I imagine. So like you're giving yourself jobs all the time. Maybe you don't want to work for anybody, but like you're, you're working. And you're, you're working for someone. Yeah. You're working for someone. That's what, what I feel like um, it's called. Yeah. What well, I'm, glad, kind of I'm glad that I'm glad the world isn't filled with people like you. Otherwise I would have no one working for me. Um, and you know, <laughs> sure. like, if you want to run a business, you, you got to hope that other people don't not believe in working for other people because, you know, scale is a fundamental principle of building a business and you have to have people working for you in order to scale things. It's just, just fundamentally. I'm not saying like everyone should be like me, by the way. I, I don't think that would be Of course good. not. I'm just you, saying you, for, for you, don't believe in a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And you know what? Like when I got into Bitcoin, dude, everyone had a hustle or a business. Like everyone was an entrepreneur to some degree. And I feel yeah. now it's at a point where like, like if you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of like, you're, if you're not hardcore, uh, if you're not a hardcore, I'm running my node type of guy. You're not a Bitcoiner, you know. And I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like that change like that. Uh -huh. um, I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's that, that much interesting you can do with that, you know. But right, uh, I may have a bias for that. Um, I mean, it's interesting though. Like having a job de-risks you somewhat of like the risk of your own stupidity and not you know being lazy and stuff like that. So uh, you know, there there are advantages to it for some people. And a lot of people, a lot of people just wake up every morning working toward retirement. That's what they want to do. Yeah, but you know, that. you know what the problem is, dude? It's like, if, if, if this is what Bitcoin is about for someone, it's like, you're, you're going to have a job. You go to the job every day. You do the same fucking thing. And now because of Bitcoin, you're going to stop this five years earlier and you're going to go and have your cabin in the woods or something. I'm just like. I don't. I don't see anything interesting in that. I mean, this is this is such a huge fucking opportunity. Like they're gonna be, you know, when the oil came about, when they started like processing oil, and there were like some people who, who had huge opportunities to grid, build great wealth. Dude, that's happening again right now. Like it's happening right now. It's easier. You're gonna waste. Your, you're not gonna take the chance and trying to do that. You're gonna get a job. That's how I feel about it. That's why I feel it's wrong, if you may. Um. Well, that that's if you want to like do something in the industry, right? Like, uh, I, I so for example, I mean, like a lot of people have taken their money that they're getting from their job and have just been acquiring Bitcoin with it. So, I mean, like, I just I think people use uh, you know the money that they earn in different ways, and sure. and a lot of them view it as a lottery ticket. And I, I think that that's probably a fundamentally uh, sick way to view Bitcoin as a lottery ticket. I don't think it is. Like, it's it's fine. Um, I fundamentally don't think that it's good for people to think of like uh, sort of these uh, magic bullets uh, of finance. You know, we, we talk about like a lot of the Ponzi's work on the show we used to talk about how like people would buy into these Ponzi's to take Hail Marys uh, because it was kind of their last shot at retirement. So they would try to make lots and lots of money in those last two or three years by taking high risk opportunities that, you know, if you're not an idiot, looked a lot like a Ponzi scheme and then they turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. But you know, hope does weird things to people. And it turned out that many of them were unable to uh, to not invest in these things at the end of their life. And they, you know, all their money was taken, lots and lots. And many people now probably have very problematic uh, look of view on retirement as a result of like buying into scams and such. But yeah, it's, it's, I'm not saying that like you're wrong in any way. I think that that's a, I think that that's a very exciting like fact uh, of what's going on in Bitcoin is that there is sort of a fun gold rush. Um, 
but but I think I think that there's a lot of reasons why someone wouldn't would kind of opt out of that idea. Like in particular, maybe they're not quite as young and vivacious as you, right? Sure, um, I can see that. Th that's th like when you're young and vivacious, like you do stupid things because um, because like you 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 view risk fundamentally differently from that side of life than you do when you're 40 or 50 or 60. And that's good. I think that that's, I think that that is an advantage and a disadvantage of youth. And I think that that's excellent. I think that like we need people taking risks. I always make the joke um, with Sean down here that like the funny thing I, uh, about millennials and Gen Zers is none of them know how to run businesses. Every single person I know starts a business. They're all t-shirt companies. <laughs> and uh, if you look at lists of like, 30 under 30 millennials and 30 under 30, uh, you know, Gen Zers you used to have like Bill Gates, uh, you know, building a computer company or, you know, just these founders that you know, Steve Jobs, you know, shit like that. You'd have these amazingly like intelligent guys doing stuff. Now you look at it, you're like the Forbes 30 under 30, almost none of them are doing anything interesting. They're, they're some of the dumbest companies I've ever seen. And they're like fashion brands. But it's also the problem that I don't think they make a lot of money and this whole like startup thing got a bit glamorized and the, the, the people you see on those covers, I, I don't think they're doing anything. They just managed to make enough noise to get there, but I don't think they're earning money, you know? And, I think that's also, right. And also the startup thing, like there's this whole fucking thing like, oh my God, we managed to raise money. We, we got 10K from some guy. And yeah. like, look at that success. No, that's not fucking success, dude. You're fucking, well, you, maybe you can... You can run that plane into the ground and you don't need to pay that, that money back. Usually that's not what happens with VC. When you get money from a VC, they, they, they go for a soft landing, right? So so I, I don't think those are people you should look at when you're looking at entrepreneurs. Uh, but, but a lot of people like, only, only shoot for that. That's what entrepreneur is right now. Dude, it's a business. A business answers one single question. Did we make money today? Great. Well, we make well, more? well think about it. Think, consider that VC is generally trying to get companies started by like, young vivacious 20 and 22 year old you know autistic people right now like that's <laughs> the story they want to tell and i think it's an interesting story that they want to tell but like it's really stupid like those are you're those what they're doing is they're taking the years uh from the lives of people that are at their highest point of risk where they could make the highest returns if they were to bet on themselves and they're telling them that the only way they can bet on themselves is if they take a, a raw deal and you know seven million dollars which they convince these kids to th that that money is their money first of all and that they that they can that they are competent enough as individuals who've never run a company to run like a unicorn multi-billion dollar company and that's why they all fail but that's their job. fairly stupid yes no no yes, they're, but, they're, they're, their job is to find a needle in the haystack though that, that's well, their job yes but they that's their job as a vc I agree, but they exploit 20 year olds to do it. And like, that's fine. It's just funny to me that like, no one's figured like these 20 year olds haven't figured this out. Like they haven't figured out that they're the ones being exploited in that system. And I think it's funny. Like I, I find it really funny that these people, these kids are so hyped up on their own like fart smells that they move to California and they get, they, they continually and their story after story of person who took a deal, sold the company for, you know, $30 million dollars. All of his uh, investors got paid. All of his bondholders got paid, and then he walked away with like forty-five thousand. Yeah, well, you know, and there's the hype. There, there's not that many great companies being built right now. And th first of all, that's how distributions work. Uh, well, this type of things, 
not all distribution, but the, the distributions when it comes to startups, it's a special kind of thing where one in a million, it's going to be the next Apple. One in a million mm-hmm. is going to be this. Now, add all this fluff around it and you're going to get a lot of stupid companies. And here's the thing. Silicon Valley is a fucking Ponzi, by the way. And let me tell you why I think it's a Ponzi. Because it got to the point where there's like money going around, around, around. Like, I'm a VC. I gave you money, okay? You're going to move that money around. Now, your company goes big, you get a, a series B, a series C or whatever, right? And then there's some other people around here. Now, out of all these people, then you, you IDO, you sell your company. Now, you start a fund or other people start a fund. And it, just, there's just money moving around there, you know? Uh, well, I mean, I think a, a good example of, uh, I think what you're trying to say is the Coinbase 21 acquisition. So both are funded by Andreessen Horowitz to like right. varying degrees. And all of a sudden, one day, uh, 21, which has no business model, really <laughs> never made any revenue. All they of made sudden the bud box, dude. They, they made, made the, the bud box, box, which I have. I have one actually. Um, they, you, you, you actually also manipulated the price of the bud box. You and Chris. That's probably true. That's true. <laughs> you yeah. made them go up. Anyway, <laughs> continue your talk. We, we, yeah, uh, we. I, th- I, I think he bought one too. I'm sure. Um, but we bought butt boxes. Uh, the potato pie tato, I think, is what the uh, butt coiners were calling it, which is uh, another funny name. Um, but the butt box, and they never had any revenue really to speak of. They didn't have any profits to speak of. Uh, they didn't really have a platform. They still really don't. It's kind of like a non-entity. It doesn't really work. It never did. It never will. And all of a sudden, they get bought by Coinbase for millions and millions of dollars. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, like, what's going on? And, I mean, to me, I look at that, and it looks like Andreessen Horowitz essentially made a couple of bets on Bitcoin. And then consolidated those bets into bit into Coinbase and paid off the investors who made bets on the other uh, elements of that fund. And that's cute and all, um, but yeah, it's, but there's nothing it's, wrong with that that per se. To be honest with you, like it's is there fraud. Mind? It's fraud. Um, I don't know if it's fraud. Um... Using using one investment to pay off like your investors in another company. I mean, they do it in a way that's legal and legitimate, but it it. it like disaggregated from that structure. But I don't have a problem with that. I don't morally have a problem with it. Like if if, 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 if they did it honestly, they didn't fuck anyone over. I don't have a problem they, with it. They did though. They, they fuck over Coinbase investors. Um, right. Because the Coinbase investors could have gotten more than right if that wasn't the case. Correct. Sure, fair enough, fair enough, I guess. I don't know. I'm not gonna like go I mean, over the Coinbase investors, though. Well, I won't. I won't either. But like, there is there is a victim in that scam, right? Like, I, I look at that. I think to myself, like, well, and then you know, it's they they get PR out of it. Like, I think I saw Melton Demerers talking about how you know 21 was a great success in Bitcoin because of the giant acquisition. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, this is so. We were all here. We watched it. <laughs> this was blatant. It just seems like everybody forgets exactly what it was you know it, it's very interesting to me how quickly everybody forgets and how nobody seems to care that this is uh the state of the industry or the state of uh, you know vc finance or whatever but you know vcs are trying to pay out their investors <coughs> sorry they want to be able to dip back into that money and i think that that's fair um and they try to treat their investors well and i'm sure that they negotiate these kinds of deals all the time but i look at it and it looks very shady uh, I just, I, to me, that entire system of like financing and uh, and paying off people for like uh, as consolation for making a shitty investment, um, it's sad. It's a sad thing. And the fact that 21 is going to be held up as a great success uh, in the industry, 
as anything other than a successful miner, which is what they started out as, uh, is is very sad as well. Like they should not be held up as a standard for anything. They're you know, kind of a shit company. I don't know exactly the insights and why they got bought and how Balaji is the CEO of Coinbase or whatever. But, of course. But if, 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 if somehow those people in the company, they, they realize, dude, we're fucked, okay? You yeah. have to fucking do something. Let's convince everyone to get bought and, 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 and transfer them into Coinbase. If they did that from the inside, I think that's something to applaud. Like that's what a startup is supposed to do. When shit gets tough, find a fucking way, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Now, if somehow, if something else happened, then it's not to applaud. But at the end of the day, as far as the MPP 21 is concerned or earned, they did well, dude. They, 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 they could have been a failure or a non-failure. They're a non-failure now. So you think so? And why I know, I know the annals of history will agree with you, but uh, I think the truth is that they were utter failures. Look, listen. If we were running that that company right now, right? Yeah. Well, we wouldn't have that. Those first of all. But well, I more. think I think you'd be able to. I, I think truth is truth, and and you can acknowledge that they were failures, even if you were one of the people that walked away with lots and lots of money from it. Uh, it, it it's it's an utter. It was an utter disgrace, and their I think product, they actually lost. They might have lost money. I think they bought what forty five million or something like that. Their product they, I think was shit. Like, everything about was them shit. Was shit. No one had any understanding of what it was there. But logic, no, just doesn't understand Bitcoin. And I get it. I understand that. But I'm trying to point out here that somehow they managed to do something, and they, well, they I know moved how, things but, around. But sure, I'm not. They, they didn't do anything interesting. All they did is they moved money from one of their funds to another fund. Right, sometimes, like, sometimes you have to do that, but, but yeah, but that's anyway. not that's not interesting, right? It's not an interesting way to like to, to earn money. They didn't earn anything. It's not like a perpetual motion machine, despite the fact that like, well, despite the fact that like a twenty one built a perpetual motion machine, it money is not. So all they did is they moved money from one wallet to another wallet, and then they said this wallet's profitable. It's like when you walk away from a, a like a casino machine and you put in a thousand. <laughs> you know how it is? You put in a thousand dollars. And you you've you've hit the button, and the thing has rolled and rolled and rolled, and now you're at three hundred dollars. You hit cash out. I've lost a bunch, and you walk away from <laughs> the machine, and the machine's blinking. It's like last payout was three hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, that's that's what that's how I see the venture capital like industry working. I think that's a perfect analogy. Look, yeah, all I was trying to say. Oh, my mic got really loud. All I was trying to say is that look, I I want to give them a bit of credit for just doing something and turning the company into not failure it, the, the the obvious failure would have been to let just shut down i just wanted to give them a bit of that right that was just it all right but you can I, I agree that. with you like like i agree with you man I, I actually agree with you um i want to go to the next room which was like all right which was which is probably my favorite one and the most memeable <laughs> uh which is um the cheapest pair of pens Yes, the cheapest pair of pants. The cheapest pair of pants. You want to explain cost, that? Cheapest pair of pants cost the least amount of money. Okay. I, I like, yeah. you know what? I used to like it, man. I, the reason I like this rule so much because me and a buddy of mine, we used to talk like this. And when someone would always ask for an explanation, we would just say, uh, we would just be redundant about it. But that redundancy makes a lot of sense if you know what you're talking about, right? Well, but from the people yeah. from the exterior, it's like you just said the same thing. But so please explain. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the cheapest pair of pants costs the least amount of money literally means that the cheapest pair of pants costs the least amount of money. But the nuance is in the fact that sometimes the cheapest pair of pants isn't the one you think it is, right? So like you might buy a pair of pants that's $8 instead of the pants that are $16, but 
but maybe the $8 pants you need to replace three times as often. And by the time you've uh, bought, you know, by the time you need to replace a $16 pair, you spent $24 on those cheap pairs. And, uh, and you realize that those are not the cheapest pair of pants. The $16 pair were actually the cheapest pair of pants, right? And that decision is in all things. Like you can, you can make any decision you, you should, and you ought to evaluate the cheapest option. Um, you know, that's in all things, whether you buy a house or you rent, you should know what the cheapest and, and by cheapest, I mean, the one that will keep will end up with the, the most money at the end of the day. So like the, it just goes back to the markets are efficient. If you live by the markets are efficient principle, that is the ideology that is the cheapest pair of pants that you can wear. And uh, you can wear more expensive pants. You can wear the I invest in individual stocks pants if you want. Uh, but those will not be the cheapest pair of pants. Those will not be the pants that at the end of the day let, give you the most amount of money. And so it's a question of ideologies, really. Like, what is the ideology that is going to be the cheapest ideology for you to sort of uh, maintain? And you can deviate from it. Um, that, that involves everything. Christianity, uh, Buddhism, atheism. You can be any religion you want. What's the cheapest religion? What's the one that's going to end you up with the most benefit at the end of all of this? You can apply it to clothing, literally. You can apply it to your finances. But the question is, uh, what is the cheapest option in any given scenario? And that's that's the ideology that is uh, probably the one you ought to pick. And then if you want to have pants that are gold studded or diamond studded or whatever, uh, you can also have those pants if you want, but you should realize that they're all just pants. Um, and that's like, we, we would often compare that to like libertarianism. Libertarianism has been saying the world is going to collapse for, you know, 50 years. They've been buying gold, tons and tons of it. And gold's done fine, um, but it's not done as well as the market as a whole, not by any means. And we used to do math where we would tell people um, how much money they lost by purchasing gold. And they would, uh, you know, we, we do the math for them where, you know, if you bought gold in, you know, 19, I don't know, 20, let's say 100 years, 1919, gold, one, out, one troy ounce of gold might have been 18 or $20, let's say it was 20 bucks. And then uh, you you say like at the time, I mean, it's, it's a little bit unfair because index funds weren't invented until what the 60s, um, I think it was, or 70s. Uh, but index funds are invented much later. But if we presume that index funds could have existed in the 20s, if you'd had that you know $20 piece of gold and you held it for 100 years, uh, today that one piece of gold and libertarians tout this as a feature of that one piece of gold would be worth what two thousand dollars? I guess so. I don't know. Probably. I think that sounds about right. Right. So let's say it's a uh, two thousand um, dollars. One hundred years, though, in the market, the market returns. Uh, you know, on average, it's returned ten percent per year, which means isn't it around nine something like that? I guess that was the thing. Right. Right. Uh, well, I think I think it's literally basically nine point two percent. Over the last, like you know, forty years. But if you were to literally index since the beginning of a hundred years ago, I think it's, uh, I, th I think it is almost like nine point nine percent, like ten percent essentially. So if you put your money in the market a um, hundred years ago, it would have doubled, uh, you know, thirteen times. So let's say ten dollars. So you got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, That's eight, to the nine, power. 10, 11, 12, 13. So that 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 twenty dollars would have been worth something like I think eighty two thousand dollars <laughs> today. So uh, the the point is that you could have been if you'd been a libertarian a hundred years ago, uh, you would have you would have given up um, 
about $79,000 in value with that ideology. Because that was an expensive pair of pants. And at the end of the day, even if you were $10,000 pants or $10 pants, they're pants and they serve the, the right. purpose of the pants. So yeah. it depends how much you want to spend that extra because yeah. that's an ideology. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, that's that's the point is like the pants cost some kind of money. And the thing is that I think most people don't realize that you can calculate how much money your ideology costs you. And uh, and in this case, being a libertarian in 1919 or 1920 would have cost you about $79,000 over the course of 100 years. Um, and that's money from you, from your grandkids. Um, and if you bought two pieces of gold, it would have been twice as much. Well, do you, do you think <laughs> Bitcoin... Uh, and consider it as abstractly as you want. Do you think that's the most cheapest pair of pants? I think having I think having a good sharp ratio is a is a cheap pair of pants. And um, Bitcoin might be a very volatile pair of pants right now that reduces your sharp ratio. Doesn't give you a great one. But uh, I do believe uh, that there is merit to the Bitcoin narrative. I've believed that since the beginning. Which is why I hold, you know, a portion of my money in Bitcoin, and uh, that could end up being the most expensive pair of pants if Bitcoin fails, because that could have been money I could have otherwise had in other places. Exactly. But it could also be a pretty nice pair of pants. Um, but you know, I'm betting on a pair of pants, and the rest of my money is in market funds, right? And that's where I put it in in the market. And I do that for a reason. And one of the reasons is that if Bitcoin takes off, that means that other industries are going to start using it. And I'm going to capture the growth that Bitcoin gives those industries. So I'm not unexposed to Bitcoin by that. I'm just exposed slower. And uh, and I also think that there is stuff that Bitcoin gives you that that the market doesn't expose you to. I've I've said this for a long time. I do think that like Bitcoin is sort of an index of certain things, including things like uh, dark markets, which well, I don't of course think it that. Is. Yeah, I think that I think that part of the value of Bitcoin is dictated. I, I get uh, the result of my, the value of Bitcoin is dictated by a lot of things, including uh, men divorcing their wives, holding and hiding money, um, dark markets, et cetera. And I get to markets being efficient. Markets yeah. being efficient, all that information gets condensed into the price of Bitcoin. That's what you're trying to say. No, I, and I think that if, 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 I'm, if I'm right about Bitcoin articulating parts of the economy that you cannot access in the traditional markets, um, what that means is that holding Bitcoins over time will prove to be um, part of the cheapest pair of pants, which is to say that it will be um, a, a large portion of uh, holding the market. You will need Bitcoin in that, if I'm right. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I've. Um, do, do you know that actually I've never had any money in my life except Bitcoin ever? Really? And I've got your gun. I've never, I only, well, I was a loser most of my life. Never mind, I was a young, yeah, I was young, but I've never earned money. I've never in my life earned yet. So, so you never had a job. You just ended up never. straight to Bitcoin. Straight, I quit college when I heard about it. And I've never bought Bitcoin in my life ever. I've only earned Bitcoin, if you can believe that. Like, never. Huh. That, never. That's great. High five to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like we, I, I think, I think your generation is interesting in that you guys have had the opportunity to sort of opt out of the economy and people like you fully have, which is interesting. Like you, you tangentially touch the traditional fiat economy. Yeah. But uh, you also have bank accounts shut down on you all the time, right? Like that's, that's a yeah. thing that I think like people like you have had to experience. And I think that that's rare for like millennials and, and Gen Zers. And, uh, and that's, that's really interesting. Like having those, 
essentially the inability to have a bank account is an astounding uh, thing for someone like me. I think that having a bank account is so fundamental because I've always had one. You know, I, I had my dad put me on fake checkbook writing when I was a child and I had to learn how to do it. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so like, it's funny because all the things that I was taught when I was a kid are gone. My dad bought this thing. It was called bank it. He would, uh, interestingly, he would hold all of my allowance deposits on a, a spreadsheet. So I was an early, uh, I understood this idea of the ledger very early. Um, and I would write him checks against the allowance that I had. Really? Yeah, I had to write him checks with bank it, uh, with bank it checks, and I had to balance my own checkbook. Were you fractionally? And, uh, were you fractionally reserving? Well, I'm sure he was. You know, I wasn't. <laughs> I'm. I'm I, you know, uh, when I was young, I tried to. I tried for a while to to do uh, check kiting, where I would write my mom a, what a check, and then well, I would write my mom a check, and then quickly deposit some money with my dad. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would rotate checks so uh, I could withdraw more than I had in the account. Didn't work. It, it, check hiding, check hiding used to work with banks. It doesn't work so well with your parents. Um, but no, I'm, it, it's early on. I was, you know, learning about money from my father, and uh, and that was one of the things he made me do. And now we we live in a world where checks are a thing of the past. And I'll tell you what: when I have contractors come and do things, do like work in my home. A huge percentage of them are accepting things like Zelle, which blows my mind. Yeah, that's really weird. I've never used a check in my life. I never, I never sent a letter anywhere. The first letter I ever sent in my life was a few days ago. I needed to do something for the company's house because that's how they like the, the way you register companies and ask for documents. That's the only way they do it. So that was weird. Do you remember there used to be this concept you talked about? I didn't have this one written down. People who are Bitcoiners before Bitcoin. Oh, like, uh, man, that's. So do you funny. feel? Do you feel like this? Why I brought this up? Like, this was a pretty Bitcoiner thing to do, if you ask me. Like, what you were doing, you know, that's a pretty Bitcoiner thing, and it was this attitude of like what Bitcoin is about before even yes. Bitcoin was a concept. So no, that's true. There, there are people that have been like very much like Bitcoiners uh, for a huge portion of their life. They've lived like Bitcoiners lived, um, and. Yeah, those people definitely exist. They're, they're people that like Bitcoin made sense for and it fit a Bitcoin shaped hole in their life. You know, there was a Bitcoin shaped hole. It was like a, like the Jesus shaped hole that Christians talk about. <laughs> and it was in the depths of their heart. And then they met their savior, Satoshi Nakamoto. And it was, it was a hole that Bitcoin just fit right into. And, uh, yeah, there's definitely people like that. They're, they're, they exist today. They've always, existed and uh bitcoin is a unique a unique thing that fills that i mean el chapo is a good example of a bitcoiner before bitcoin you know having to hold all of that cash for example um that seems like the kind of thing that you would want to very quickly stop if you could and he can with less risk i'm sure yeah yeah that was an interesting one uh the the last rule that I have here is, uh, which is something I also mentioned earlier, is join me at the cribbage table. Oh, there's one rule in addition to that. Join me at the cribbage table is rule 10 or some other rule way beyond that. The, the rule, yeah, that, that's the, the last, last one. The last rule before that, though, is uh, you could have known. You, what? You could have known. 
Okay, go on, explain. So, so the I mean, the, the idea is pretty simple. Uh, there's a lot of things in life where um, at the end of at the end of it happening, people look at you and they go like, "Well, there was this sign and this and this, but how could we possibly have known?" Right? Madoff is a good example. Uh, where people look at it and say, well, I was earning 14% interest and I was excited about it and everyone was saying it was a scam. But well, there was no other sign other than everybody else was saying it. And uh, you look at them and, and the truth is, uh, yeah, you could have known. You could have known. There was and, a guy who was crying, especially when Madoff. He fucking knew, first of all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, 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 the, and the reality is that uh, the caveat emptor thing matters a lot. It is your responsibility if you make a mistake. You put your money in a Ponzi scheme um, I'm going to feel bad for you, but you could have known. You could have known. And there, if you had followed the other rules that you've learned here, uh, you could have avoided it altogether because you would never have put your money in a Ponzi scheme. Um, and I think that I think it takes a person, you know, it, it, it articulates in some ways uh, the reality of Bitcoining, which is that you're not a Bitcoiner until you've gotten scammed. Uh, and that might mean uh, having your Bitcoins taken away and it might be uh, that you get stabbed and uh, in a parking lot and Bitcoins <laughs> are stolen from you, or it could be that someone hacks your wallet or, or whatever. You scam yourself. Yeah. There's also that. Right. There's you can scam yourself. Absolutely. Which is another, another concept that was like really, what well, was brought up a lot on the show. With, okay. Well, scamming yourself is important because we would have debates about scams all the time and people would say like, well, he, he, he he's not running a scam. We're like, yeah, he doesn't know he's running a scam. It's different. Well, if he doesn't know, then he can't be running one. It's it's not a scam then, or it's not a lie. He's not like scamming anymore. It's like, well, if you're running a Ponzi scheme that you don't know is a Ponzi scheme, it doesn't make it not a Ponzi scheme. So the idea is that you can be running a scam and uh, you, you don't, yeah, you don't even have to know it's a scam. A scam is a scam is a scam. I, I think that the idea that intention matters, uh, the mens rea of an act might matter for law enforcement. Uh, what happened? I, I muted myself. Okay. Yeah, that was just the men's the men's rea might matter for law enforcement, but it doesn't matter with regard to whether something is in fact a scam. And I think there's a, it needs to be a recognition that like not all scams are prosecuted or caught, right? Um, some scams people get away with. Oh yeah, that is very true. Uh, you know, like the reason why I like those rules so much is because it it brings an idea of personal responsibility. And that, yeah. that, that talks a lot to this be your own bank. We, like people articulate those things in different ways right now on Twitter. But th this was always about it. And this is always about being your own bank, having your own money, doing your own thing. Like, dude, you have to look at these things for what they are. And you guys, that was, go on, sorry. I do, th I do think that the last rule, the, the see at the curvature table matters quite a bit as well. Oh, yeah, explain that, explain that, sorry. So, so I mean, I think the idea, the idea of the rule, the curvature table is real simple. Like. Um, I think this idea that life is about happiness is kind of uh, bullshit, and I think that I think that life is about satisfaction. And I think if you can understand that life is about satisfaction, um, you can, at that point, do very little to be a satisfied person. Uh, you just you choose to be satisfied much of it. You don't necessarily chase happiness. And once you're satisfied, uh, you you can retire in any state and uh, be anybody's equal. And when you're done and ready to kind of check out, whether that's check out of life or retire, whether you're 60 or whether you're 30, doesn't really matter. Um, uh, you, you can live satisfied and you can do anything you want, and including sitting around and playing cribbage uh, 
while others judge you, and it doesn't matter because uh, all of all of these things, all of these sort of rules that get you there, uh, they they're they're there to basically just be satisfying. You know, life is life ought to be uh, satisfying, and you ought to be satisfied in it, and that's it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, I agree. And, but I agree, uh, the personal responsibility thing is a big one. And, and that's why I like the show so much, because at the yeah. beginning when I first, I, I didn't listen to you guys for the first episode, but I, you guys were talking with these big words and it sounded smart, but I couldn't tell what the fuck it was, but I like the <laughs> jokes. And then after a few years, I'm like, oh, I see what these guys are, are talking about. This is some deep shit if you can't think of it. And, and it was so artistic in its way. It was so artistic. Thank you. I mean, I really liked them. And, oh, and let me tell you what. So, so again, I was a huge fan of the show. And um, I got robbed at some point for people who don't know. And I ended up going on the show. And I was officially the last person on the show before the breakup. That's and, true. And I'll tell you what, that was like one of the most happiest. I was so happy then, dude, if you couldn't imagine, the fact that I got to be on the show. <laughs> I was incredible happy. And then after that, a month afterwards, I'm trying to set up my ATMs in London, right? And I'm talking with someone. And I go like, dude, how do we, how do we market this? What do we do in marketing? And someone goes like, fucking ask Johnson. He's a genius in marketing. And oh. I, I hit you up and I go like, and I go like, Johnson, I'm the guy who got robbed. What do you want? Uh, I need help with marketing. Okay. Where, where are you from? London. I'm in London right now. I don't believe you. Here I am. And you show me a picture that you are in St. Catherine's docks, right? It's true. I, yeah. And, and I, I'm like, at the end of the show, you would always say, St. Catherine, pray for us. I thought, I thought you were fucking trolling me. But uh, at three o'clock in the morning, I go there and we hanged out. Do you remember? It was well, you took, me to the, you, took me, you took me to the ghetto. Uh, you went to Chinatown. <laughs> we, uh, and then we ended up in the car of a pimp who took us, who took us okay. to one of his brothels. One, one second. Let, let's just take it step by step. So what happened, the, why I liked so much was that... Uh, you know, when I, when I saw the show, you guys were talking about hookers and all of these things and like doing hardcore things. And then I see you and you weren't like that. And that's when you explained me that it was a character and it was like, this was intentional and, and what was going behind. And that's when I was like appreciating even more what the show was about, right? Because it showed that it was intentional. It showed that it was put thought into this. And all these things, they were so poetic, but not poetic in the obvious way, poetic in, the, in a very contemporary way. You know, contemporary way. So, so that was really cool for me. But then again, uh, you used to say never say no to Bitcoin, and I said like, dude, I'm gonna show you what Bitcoin really is about. <laughs> Let's fucking do some real stuff. So well, we, we I, I, I will say uh, all the things we talk about on the show. I mean, like we we did a lot, like all that stuff. It wasn't it wasn't not done, um, but it was it was like very. Uh, very like we'd go into the ghettos and we would do those things. We talked to drug dealers and stuff, and it was a uh, it was a lot of weirdly dangerous stuff, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun, but that's that like I I my background is not that you know <laughs> um, I'll I'll fully admit that that was that was stuff that like was out of my comfort zone, and I loved doing it because it was so far outside of my comfort zone. Well, the guy who you said was a heroin, he's not a heroin. He was just a guy who buys bitcoins for me. And he, <laughs> there was, there, he was just a bit like weird. Okay. He was a bit weird. And I did, I did know because usually I would meet with him somewhere else, but I knew where he was from. And what we did that I told him, we're going to come to his place. And we took yeah. a train. You slept on the train. It was like a whole adventure. We went in the, no one doesn't have ghettos anyway. The, the UK ghetto. Yeah. Yeah. We went there. <laughs> Do you remember that? 
Oh yeah, that was great. It was it, it was on the outskirts. It was a good hour. Yeah, we I was so were... fucking tired. I mean, like, I, I at that point, I think that I'd been up for like three days straight. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Um, so we we we'd stay, and then and then that night after that, uh, we all went to my my hotel room, and we got you, we got Danny Brewster, yeah, Black uh, Brewster and David, yeah, and David. That's right, and uh, the guy who did the other ATMs, I think, there, right. And we no, were all in the that, room. That was, he used to work for that guy. Oh, funny right. story. Funny story. David's old boss, boss fucked him up somehow. Oh. And David is working <laughs> for, for uh, Danny Brewster right now, by the way. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I love Danny. I like, I like that gang. And we, we sat there. We did a, a Junces World. Uh, we sat there and did just Bitcoin stories for like, I think it was seven hours. Six hours. Six hours. It was a yeah. long time. Longest show long. I've done. It was yeah. a great show. And, uh, and I, I enjoy those. I enjoy like those long form. I mean, like that's, that's the thing for me. Um, th this was always sort of a, a weird, uh, meta journalistic adventure, uh, where we inserted ourselves in the story and, you know, unlike journalists, but in the way that we ought to have, I think it, it was needed in Bitcoin. And I think that that, you know, for me, that's always what Bitcoin has been about is like, where, where is the story of Bitcoin? What does it look like? And how do you tell that story? And I, I think that that was that was the BU thing was that we we encapsulated the story as much as we could, and that was fun. It was it was a lot of fun, and I liked doing it. But but there was also the fact that you guys had such a good understanding and such a good way to frame it, right? Okay, let's get back to the example. So you're telling. Let's get back to what happened then. And you did this also with me then. Uh, let me clarify. So you said you want to see what's the real stuff, right? Like you want to see real Bitcoin. Yeah, I wanted, to, now, I wanted to go into the Bitcoin. So I, after we went and did that trade, which again, wasn't like nothing weird happened or anything mm -hmm. there. I told you like, well, let me tell you what, let's go in Chinatown, right? Yeah. There's some guys who have some, some Bitcoin ATMs there. Yeah. Right? And let's see what's happening there. And once we go there, I happen to know that guy, you know, we talk. And then he starts telling us how actually there's some, there's some guys who run cabs who are illegal. And who are also pimps and would take yeah. you to poker, right? <laughs> and then there's some turf war between them and the people who are like um, the police. And then this weird thing developed there where they would try to film each other. And as this guy is telling us those things, I remember you explaining like in a very view sense, what, what were the dynamics there and the market dynamics and how you could understand those things and why this was happening. And for me, that was just like... I. I that's what I loved. Like I was leaving it right there. That that was exactly what you're talking about on the show. Uh -huh. There's this yeah, fucking people. It's a lot of fun. There are these people who, who are going to bring hookers, and you are analyzing the market dynamics of what's happening there. And, and what well, I find a real, is. I find I find uh, dark markets to be very interesting. There are these underground markets. People take in, inordinate, very interesting risks, and uh, <coughs> sorry, they do it at the expense of like the possibility of losing like, you know, five, 10, 15 years of their life or everything they've earned. And uh, they do it for lots of reasons. I'm not exactly sure what those reasons are um, always, but they're really interesting, really fucking interesting. And they're everywhere all over the world. And anywhere in the world, there's people willing to take up that role of like being the bad guy, being the person who will rape your sister. And I find that to be like a, a really fucking interesting dynamic in the world. And, and no one's willing to go in there because the rest of the world views it as an illegitimate market, but it's not. It's a real market with real market dynamics, and uh, and and it's surprising to me that you can. I mean, you can go to jail for life for you know importing women, and you know I don't I don't actually know what the punishments are, but like 
it's got to be severe. It's legal um, in the UK. It's legal. Prostitution is legal. It's illegal to solicit on the street, but it's legal to be a hooker. Okay, interesting. So, but like you can, you can, uh, you can go to jail in a lot of places for you know trafficking or whatever that is that you're doing, and and uh, and yet people will do it. They will traffic and they'll you know they'll do it fairly blatantly. It's not like it's difficult to find in Florida. You go down the street. You want to find a, a hooker. Uh, you just look for a, a sign that gives that's on that says uh, Asian massage, and it's three a.m. and you know what they do. It's not like a difficult thing to understand. And you'd think that that you'd think that that transaction would be like three thousand dollars given the risk, but it's not. It's like one hundred fifty bucks. No, but but here's the thing though, uh, and because the markets are efficient, that doesn't get punished as often. And that thing got the risk by them building relationship with. Um, police and whatever and they know that's kind of happening so the risk is actually real a hundred dollars it's i'm sure i'm sure you're right i I, like i believe that the market is efficient there um and it's just really interesting to me that market dynamics work even in those places and then even with that like as the risk gets reduced with things like bitcoin and sending heroin in the mail uh you know the, the 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 risk is further reduced and it's interesting that on these dark markets you have like heroin and real market price dynamics at work with people and trust systems and all of that rising up in a way that like doesn't work in places like Amazon. Amazon.com has like a, a lot of trouble with things like counterfeits, right? And the dark markets, I'm sure they do, but it's different. It's really, really different. Like usually they're very concerned with getting you what you want. And, and the thing that I wait to see, and I don't know if this is how it's going to be, is whether time changes that. Because with Amazon, they started out very clean and it took many years for the sort of uh, dynamics of pollution to inset. And I wonder what's going to happen with dark markets. And I doubt that you'll see that because I think that like the reason that Amazon uh, has become polluted is largely because of the fact that they never accounted for the fact that there are people out there who will rape your sister, whereas dark markets are filled with those people. So it would it would make me assume that dark markets probably uh, are filled with the smartest scammers in the world, and they they've already pulled what they're going to pull, and that somehow the trust dynamics there seem to work pretty well. And we see with dark markets where people do like exit scams, but rarely. Right, I think pretty much the thing is like the the closer you are to a free market dynamic, you're just going to get better pricing, right, and more efficient pricing. So that's what actually is happening there. Yeah, you know? things get played out and, and keep and you know. The bids and the ask of Strata, they just fight it amongst each other, and that's what happens. That's why you get a price and everything gets cut out. Market outside of the market. It's just not like it's, it's, I think, I don't know how deep is it as a market. Do you know? Oh, it, like I know one uses it, to be honest with you. Almost fucking okay. uses it, right? So it's so, not a dark market, but it's an inefficient market, I'm sure. It is really. I mean, we can, we, I was very critical about how they designed things there and they did it very poorly and they don't understand what's actually happening. They're just decentralized for the sake of being decentralized. But, um, yeah. uh, but no, I was just trying to say like, because also the, what we were looking at there in Chinatown, those people running illegal cabs, that was also a dark market, right? So right. I was trying, trying to understand where you, where you draw the line on being dark, right? Because I thought you were saying like anything that, that kind of allows you to do anything you want should be a dark market, right? To some degree. Well, I mean, I think that it's ill-defined. I don't think that they're it's, – it's sort of like if you drive from Broward to Miami, um, it all looks the same. And then you just – you know you're in Miami at some point. Like you can know when you're in Miami when you're in downtown Miami. 
But at some point between Broward and like Miami, it changes, right? Uh, Broward and Dade, the county changes. There's a county line somewhere. It all looks the same. It doesn't like change at all. And I think that's kind of how it is. I think there's a, a, I think that's why we have this thing we call the gray market. Um, I think that there is a very little, like, you know, you go, you have the court sort of like clear, the very clear white market, you know, Target and Walmart and uh, Ma and Pa shops and stuff like that. And then you have these kind of like middle of the road markets where uh, market dynamics work and everything, but like they're kind of questionable businesses. And those are often money businesses like uh, MoneyGram and you know, whatnot. And, uh, and other things that are gray, like, I don't know, here in America, apparently selling raw milk is kind of a gray market. Um, and then you have things that are like utterly and, you know, officially illegal where the feds will knock your, your house down um, for buying or selling, you know, heroin or crack cocaine or something like that. So like there's a delineation. We know what a dark market is sometimes, you know, 90% of the time we know exactly what it looks like. And we know what a white market is 90% of the time we know exactly what that looks like. And then, you know, there's a few P, a few places that fall into that like squishy middle. And I don't know, like if, if prostitution is legal, um, that might be it, weirdly a white market in the UK. And I don't know if cabs, running cabs is illegal. Maybe that's the dark market in the UK. That was a dark market. Yeah. Finally enough, that was darker because uh, you need a license and whatever, and those people would still make money. You know, that was mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So, yeah, like that's it's interesting because like local jurisdiction has a lot to do with what is and what is not a dark market. Um, yeah. That said, like, I think the cabs there were ne necessary in getting people to the hookers, right? <laughs> yeah, they were. So, <laughs> so, I mean, it might be that it might be that there's a white market there that's necessitating a black market, which is interesting. And I, I don't know how that works, how the dynamics of that work out. Yeah, well, I don't know also anyway, but but there was interesting, but, but Chinatown is definitely the place where you can see things. That's why I wanted to go there, right? Because I, I loved it. There was, I, weird, there was weird I, stuff there. I know? told you I wanted to see the seamy underbelly of like the UK and you, you gave it to me. I was very happy about it. Yeah, well, um, Chinatown, you can never go wrong with Chinatown, you know, so. so yeah. Well, my favorite is that there's like a little like Asian blowjob massage parlor there too. Like up yeah, some, yeah. Like in this tiny little like area. Like things that I never would have known existed there, but are obvious in retrospect unless someone like shows you. Like, yeah, if you walk through that like nameless door, it's a hooker palace. Like, great. <laughs> well, it was also cool that we made friends with that guy at the ATM because he kind of like knew everyone there. And he was like, we were sitting down with him and he was like, what actually is happening there is this. And then you would go like, oh, because of this reason and this reason. And he would just yeah, yeah. it out, you know, and you would just explain it. I, I just loved that moment. It was, it was yeah. so Bitcoin uncensored. I had a really good time in the UK with you. It was very fun. Um, I'm happy, dude. And then, and then since then, you've, uh, you know, we've we've had some mutual friends that I've been working on on converting over the last few years, and it sounds like they've uh, they've kind of done some conversions. And I think you've even traded with them uh, bitcoins. Some of those friends. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if, if it makes <laughs> sense to talk about that because maybe they don't want to talk about it or something like that, you know. And I, I'm, I'm sure they don't. But I, I just, uh, I just, I just think that that's fun. That you've uh, that you've gotten like there's been even like other people that have uh, that, that you know I have friends in other places but people that have like basically taken years and years to kind of come around on on uh, on bitcoins and and like now they're doing local bitcoin transactions and they're seeing them with uh, with Trooper which is which is fun it's <laughs> like for me getting to go out with you and seeing that local transaction with that guy was one of the first times I've gotten to see like a bitcoin user really like take to bitcoin. Uh, someone who needs it 
and the interaction of sitting there in the car waiting for the transaction to actually happen and stuff like that. That was very interesting. I really liked watching that. And something that I don't think people are going to get to see um, later on unless they were tied into Bitcoin. Like those are going to be stories that nobody's ever going to remember. Oh, 100%. Like I learned so many things, dude, by, mm -hmm. by just doing that. And, and it was interesting that there was a huge inefficiency in the market, right? And that's why I was making money then. And the inefficiency was there that that guy didn't understand he could use Coinbase, right? He didn't have that information. Uh, and I found an inefficiency, and that's what I was charging a percentage on top of it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Are you still doing lo local trades? Are you allowed to say? or? Well, I mean, well, here's the thing. I I mean, we're right now we're licensed as a money service business here, you know. Nice. And, and, so you've got official. Well, we were official even back then, you know. <clears throat> But, but that, I think when you met me back then, we were kind of starting off. Like that trade was probably like 30 quid or something. And it was such a small trade and, yeah. and we barely started off. But um, we were, I mean, that, that was my whole thing, man. I've always wanted to have a proper business. But since then, what happened, um, we, I grew that business. It grew really well. We can talk numbers off air. I don't want to talk numbers here. Um, and then after that, I got a bit distracted. I've started... Um, Opens, I got some licenses in all across Europe and I wanted to open an exchange and that didn't work out. And then I wanted to open to start a peer to peer exchange for face to face interactions. Nice. And then, and then this <laughs> thing happened with the corona. So now I, I was like, I just need to do some trades to make some fucking money. But uh, we, we can talk about that after because I don't think that's interesting for people. That's why. Um, okay. Here's another thing I want to bring up um, getting your po Pokemon game reset. Oh yeah, you, you know yeah, that's I rough, think, man. You know what I think is really interesting that a lot of people celebrate the pizza day, okay? Yeah, but I think that's how you pop your cherry, and let me tell you why. Because Laszlo, it's kind of like the first Bitcoiner. Well, he's yeah. not the first, first, but one of the first Bitcoiners. <laughs> and the first thing that he did, he let go of his Bitcoin while understanding what he was. You know, uh -huh. is it, this kind of like a Christian thing, which you have to like understand? You have to let go of it. Yeah, he sacrificed his uh, his Charmander. No, he, he sacrificed he his. Uh, he did sacrifice his Bitcoin on like a pyre of pizza, and uh, <laughs> and it's it's both sad and, and and delightful for all of us. But the thing is, I mean, like people don't realize like ten thousand Bitcoin at the time was. Yeah, I mean that was the first transaction. So, ten thousand Bitcoin was worth two pizzas or a pizza, and uh, he could have bought that right back. Yeah, and and but but what I'm trying to say is that it's metaphorical that you have to understand that you have to have your pizza moment. If you don't have yeah. your fucking pizza moment, you're not a proper Bitcoiner, you know. Right. Yeah. And then there's also this whole thing like getting your Pokemon or like everyone I know from the old day, dude. Everyone got their Pokemon. Everybody. Dogs. Everybody. Which means you, gotta, you lose all your Bitcoin. That's what it means. Yeah, it's like a, it's that feeling of like hopeless destituteness when you turn on your Pokemon game that you've worked hours and hours to play and <laughs> it says like, I'm sorry, uh, an error has occurred and this game no longer exists on this cartridge. And every Bitcoiner has that. They get hacked or, you know, whatever the hell it is. But something something happens where they do something stupid and they get their game reset. And it's, it's a hopeless feeling. You have to decide whether you're going to continue being a Bitcoiner. Usually it's followed by like a period of resentment for Bitcoin and anger. And uh, oftentimes people leave and they, you know, they become shit coiners for a while. They, they will leave for a long time and, until like the valley of shit coining. 
and uh, they'll wander around like Jesus, and they'll eventually possibly come back and um, become a full-on like Bitcoin maximalist. It takes a long time, but it's part of it's part of the experience of being a Bitcoiner, realizing that holding your value is like trying to contain an explosion. <clears throat> it's exactly like that. I've got my Pokemon game reset like four times or something. So, yeah. So you're four times the Bitcoiner of many of us. <laughs> I wouldn't say that though. I would, I would rather have my stash, but you know, this is again, this is a very important cult thing that, that's lost from the culture because all those people on Twitter now, they just dollar cost average and they talk shit on Twitter and run their note on the Raspberry Pi and they think, oh, that's what it is to be a Bitcoin. Look at me, how, how what a Bitcoiner I am. And, and I don't think so, man. Uh, I don't look at them as Bitcoiners anyway, you know. But yeah, um, what else did we talk about? We're going for an hour and 38 minutes here. Um, you wanted this, scam yourself, Pokemon Gunner said. Um, well, there's this one thing. You guys also started this whole scam busting thing. Like you made it a, a Bitcoiner thing. And now a lot of people do it, but they don't, they don't know why that is. But I can't hear you. I keep okay. muting myself. There's like some hotkey that I keep pushing. Um, yeah, the scam busting thing is interesting. We did do that. In fact, Bitcoin Uncensored sort of started that way accidentally. Well, the, the John Seth uh, character uh, very much started that way. We were at a conference. Let me ask you something. Does the Bitcoin Uncensored name come from the fact that, that there was a, a, a scam there at a conference? No, Bitcoin Uncensored comes from the fact that... Um, so we started as a small segment on a show uh, called the Counterparty uh, Weekly Wrap-Up, I think, or something like that. And we were given a small section of the show. And Chris and I hated Adam Levine, uh, who was the one who owned uh, what was it, the, the major Bitcoin podcast conglomerate at the time. Uh, let's talk Bitcoin. It sucked. <laughs> And he tried to run a clean network, and we decided that we were going to make that very difficult for him. So we we started off the show, and I at first I I I didn't I told Chris I didn't really want to necessarily do a show because I thought that if we did a show it would be funny and people would want it, and we'd have you know to keep doing it, and we'd have obligations. You know, little did I know the adventure we'd end up on. But uh, so I we we I agreed to do it. We started doing off those little shows, and we were supposed to have a one minute segment at the end of each show and talk about something relevant. And it grew from one minute to five minutes to 10 minutes. I think we doubled every week. So first week it was one minute, then the next week it was two, then four, then eight, then 16. And then it became that we were 90% of the show, he would start it and then he would basically just like hand it off to us. And Adam Levine didn't like our swearing. And uh, at the time his name was Robert hated editing the show because he had to edit all the swear words out. <laughs> like he, they wouldn't bleep them out. They would just like cut them out. They would like go in there with like a scalpel and cut them. So Chris and I tried to make sure to swear as often as possible. And it, we just thought it was so fucking funny. Um, so we, we, we started telling people that the original shows, we, we told them that they were available uh, with all of this unedited swearing intact over at this other place, the the new segments that we were doing. 
And uh, so we called it Bitcoin Uncensored because it was the counterparty talk or whatever the show was, um, but the uncensored portion of that show because they used to cut out all of our material. And they would, they would cut it down because like we would usually do like 40 minutes of material and he would have to cut it down to like six minutes, <laughs> which we thought was hilarious. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that was the name. That was how that rose up. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah. Okay, I didn't knew that. I knew that. I thought it was because you guys bested a scam that was kind of Bitcoin, called Bitcoin uncensored or something like that. At some no, point. no, no, no. So there was a there was a scam that we like accidentally. Well, well, I sort of I I took it down accidentally. I think um, we're pretty sure it was called BTC. It was Bitcoin dash, uh, Bitcoin dash trader dot bids. That was the name of the scam. And it was a Ponzi scheme. And the first that we heard about it was at a place called Coins in the Kingdom. And this was pre-Bitcoin Uncensored. Um, Coins in the Kingdom, Bitcoin. What year was this? Bids. Ooh, I don't know, 2015 maybe? Okay. Um, you know, and, and we went to we, we went to Disney for this thing. But Bitcoin-Trader.biz was, had the big booth in the middle. And they were advertising. These two people from Canada were sitting there and advertising. And they were very, very, very you know, kind of haughty, proud of themselves for, you know, being in this thing. And they were running a TV screen that showed all the trades they were making. It was just clearly like, you know, fake trades that were being piped in. And they had put all of their life savings into this thing. And they were insisting it wasn't a Ponzi. It was clearly a Ponzi, like very obvious, uh, very, very obvious Ponzi. This is actually where I sort of stopped being an anarchist, frankly, at this conference. It was kind of <laughs> aha moment. <laughs> So I staked out their booth and I sat there and as every single person came in, I would explain to them why this was a Ponzi scheme, basically not letting them sell anything at this conference, ruined their premier sponsorship by doing it. And uh, they started threatening to sue me and they were trying to like, you know, cause legal action and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then the next week, uh, we find out later what happens is that they gave a call to the, the guy who owned it. Like, there was this guy, there was this portly fat man at this conference who kept asking us whether this was a Ponzi, you know, what was going on. So the next, they said, we really need to assure, ensure, and like, we need to reassure people that we are not a Ponzi. So they announced the week after Coins in the Kingdom that they were going to do a, uh, they were going to do an audit of their wallet. And so they did the audit of their wallet. And in the process of auditing the wallet, it got hacked and all of the money... <laughs> All of the money disappeared. <laughs> the process of getting audited. How did you get hacked? <laughs> exactly. And the guy disappeared and nobody knows where he is or who he is or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but like it ended up that that Ponzi only grew to like one or two million dollars. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of money lost, but like it's a lot better than I think it could have been. So that was kind of our first takedown uh accidental but it was just 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 done by asking questions and that was kind of the power of the question asking that we discovered and the informing people very simply like because this is the you could have known thing like people sat there hearing their pitch and everyone sits there hearing it and thinks like this sounds fishy like does anyone else think it sounds fishy and if nobody speaks up then you end up with like this possibility of having sort of a herd mentality of investors 
jumping in and and uh, and getting into these things together and joining with one another in uh, in in signing up for Ponzi schemes and whatnot. And that's you know that's real bad. And it just takes a couple people, one or two people, to really like say like I know everybody here is uncomfortable, but this is not this is not okay. And uh, and we you know we did the same thing sort of with OneCoin um, many oh, years yeah. later where we stormed a OneCoin conference with like five or six people. It was very funny. Um, we had people we got kicked out of that and we kind of ended that. I, I hope that the effect is that we saved 10, 20, 30, maybe fifty people from investing their life savings into something. And I don't think that you get rewarded for that on earth or in heaven, but uh, it certainly was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it was cool. Dude, the thing is, like, I lived by the Bitcoin Uncensored Code. Did you? I, I was hated <laughs> in London, man. Like, And people who know me notice at every meetup I would go, I would be the guy just asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. I, I, I just loved it. I loved it so much to do that because you guys are doing it. Skepticism is skepticism is important, and it really pisses people off. And uh, you know, I always like to walk people through there. I like to I, I enjoy the Socratic method where you kind of walk people through their own position, and then they repeat it to you. But like you, you kind of let them met metaphorize it and uh, give you a, a metaphorical version, and and then step it back, you know, through you in a ridiculous way. And it just reveals the ridiculousness of people's arguments. And uh, you just you know like. It, it, it ties them in knots because they're not prepared for it. And it's, it's, it's kind of a style of argument that I think we, we developed, not the Socratic method, but this idea where you don't, like I think a lot of people in arguments like to do things like name the, uh, name the fallacy that people say, you know, and our style of argument was to actually engage with people that were committing logical fallacies and to just treat fallacies like they were a, uh, a, a poor, and weak argument. So if someone gives you a fallacy, you can walk through it like a giant hole in a defensive line and you can start like making fun of them. It's just a weakness. And so if it's a weakness of their argument, you can perform for the audience and win the argument because they don't know their own argument. And that was the thing with Bitcoin is it was too easy because nobody knows how this stuff works. Right. And, uh, and so people will say things and to demonstrate knowledge, we only had to have 1% more knowledge than they did. And they had zero knowledge. So we had a million percent more than they did. And, you know, it worked out most of the time, not always, but most of the time it worked out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think now is happening with Bitcoin, though? Because it's um, clearly something else than it was in the old days. It's, it's a yeah, it's a lot less, thing. it's a lot less, it's a lot more boring. It's a little more ossified. Uh, I think the community seems to have gone through all the scams. So I think that the community is itself hardened. Um, Bitcoin's professionalized a little bit, which is funny, uh, cause all the professionals that told us that we were idiots for being here and children think that now it's their turn to play with it. Like, oh, okay, man. Like, and, and we're all kind of like bored. Like it is what it is. Like we all like Bitcoin. We like what it does. Um, we realize it's here to stay. All the kids know about it. I feel like most of us just feel like we did our jobs and we're like Bitcoin retired and not retired in the sense that we're rich, but retired from like like caring that much. It's like, okay, this works. We did it. Good for us. Um, now let's watch it. Let's watch what it does. We've let our baby out of the nest. Well, you know what? See, this is my problem, man, because for me, it's really important to be a Bitcoin. Again, I've never done anything else in my life. And um, I don't want to accept that it stops somewhere here. That's And I have a problem with that, you know? 
And I, I no, think- I, that's not what I'm. I think you're misunderstanding, though. I'm not saying okay. that we stop. What I'm saying is, you're a mother, and at some point, your child leaves your home and goes to college and makes their own life. And I think early on, when Bitcoin was a baby, we we would hold it and cradle it, and we we were responsible for growing it, making sure that it got to the ripe old age of 18 and was able to like leave the house and go to college. At which point, it started making its own decisions. And uh, early on, we could affect a lot of things because we would get in there and um, you know have, we would be part of the debates. And you know it, we're not doing that anymore because it's a little bit bigger. It's too big. It's grown up, so it does its own thing. And I, I don't like the, the the debates. I care about are things like Bitcoin's uh, wife. I care about like having a say in who who he gets married to. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not the little things. I no longer want to wipe its ass when it takes a shit. I want to like be you know part of UASF. You know, I want to be uh, maybe have some say in how lightning develops. But it's it's less often. Like Bitcoin comes to me less often and says, "Hey, um, here's my here's my girlfriend. What do you think of her? I'm thinking of marrying her." It doesn't do that as often as it used to. You know, I no longer need to go into the bathroom and make sure that it doesn't poop on the floor. Um, and I think that that's I think that that's kind of how I view the state of Bitcoin right now is that it's it's like 23 years old. It's a little older. It's doing its own thing. It's growing. I get to watch my baby um, and your baby. And uh, and I get to I, I get to let it uh, make some mistakes, but it, the mistakes aren't fatal anymore. Not like they used to be. Does well, that makes sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense. That's a really nice way to put it, actually. Yeah. So yeah, you I get guess. to sit back. It's a little less work, but I still love watching it. It's just that it's just that I can control less. I don't have as much control of it, and and you don't have as much. You've never had any control of it to begin with, right? We've never really had control, but. We were able to do more with our voice early on than we can now. Now it's a little crowded out. You have a lot of idiots sitting on Reddit and other places, and it's just a different. It's a different animal. Yeah, it is. I guess I'm. I'm just complaining that things aren't how they used to be. That's my. I'm an old man. Like ah, things used to be different. You know. Well, you just. It's nice. It's nice to be. It's nice to want to hold on to this thing, but I think it's important to realize that. Um, we're less important than we were as people, as characters, as like guardians of, of project. Um, the debates are being had and, you know, by, by different projects, the old projects that kind of proved Bitcoin's metal, they're either kind of dead or they're, uh, they're ossified or they're being used every day. I mean, like BitGo, for example, that's being used by a lot of people. Counterparty being used by very few, but it's still, I think, an important Bitcoin application and made sure that elements of the Bitcoin project remained um, with regard to things like, you know, how the wallet uh, wallets were reading and, and outputting data, stuff like that. Um, those things were really important early on. And I think that we've, we've kind of made our point. So now the question is, uh, what's next? You know, as, as Bitcoin grows, as more people find uses for it. What's, what's the next sort of type of thing that's going to be developed within and around and on it? And I think that's that's going to be fun to watch and also something that, like, I have no say in. I'm not part of those projects anymore, you know. And and that, that's a little sad, but, uh, you know, it's also it's also great. So I, I feel like I have empty nest syndrome. I know what it's like. Um, I, can, I can now go and travel 
instead of having to like care every day about like what my baby's doing. Okay, well, yeah, that's that's a very poetic way to put it, man. Yeah, that's a very interesting way to put <laughs> I'm the, it. I'm the Langston Hughes of Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but it sounds right. <laughs> Well, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, but but you know what? I just feel that um, I, I also enjoy the culture around it, and I, I don't feel like there's any more anything more like, you know what? I like Bitcoin because it was cool, and that was a big part of, of BU proving why it was cool. No, and and here's the thing: you weren't trying to convince people to be a Bitcoiner. You are like, we're Bitcoiners. Don't be like us. But this is what it means to be a Bitcoiner. We're gonna be Bitcoin. Yeah. And well, now, I was. I was... Sorry, I'll let you go. Continue. And, but, but now what people, what the people who are in charge of the culture, if you may, that are doing, there's like, we're Bitcoiners. Here's why you need to be a Bitcoiner and why you should be a Bitcoiner. And you have to take these boxes. And I'm, I'm pissed off about it. That's what I'm pissed off about. Because, well, I want, I want it to be done again in the BU thing. Because I want it to be cool for me. And I want it to be cool for the people when I show it to them, you know? Well, I always viewed Bitcoin uncensored, and, and still, I mean, this is not that different now. It's just that I have less of a voice now than I used to. Um, but I always viewed us as like the announcers in a baseball game where we were sitting up in the box, and we had an empty stadium when we started, and uh, everybody was down on the field being or participating in a scam. And we were just up in the boxes laughing at the scammers and laughing at the people down there, and we were inviting everybody to come just sit in the stands. Anybody could do it. And eventually, all of Bitcoin was sitting in the stands. And all you had in the middle were the people trying to come in and be scammers. And we were all laughing at them together. And it was just a blast. And I, I thought that was a pretty fun and unique experience because uh, because we all got to, like, go on that journey together and figure out why we were there in those stands. And, it, it you know, I don't think that there is a list of things that make a person a Bitcoiner. Um, it was it, we would always joke and define people as Bitcoiners or not Bitcoiners, um, largely because it was funny. But also because it's somewhat true, like uh, this this idea that like uh, you know it's we, we would call it black person money, and and it was oh yeah it's, oh yeah that was another one. It still is. Bitcoin's black person money. It's like money of the disenfranchised, and it's always going to be dissident and dis, disenfranchised people's money, and uh, and it's going to be held by the, the privileged. And, you know, not to get like into this like SJW language, but that's the truth. It is, it is the money of the disenfranchised and the money of the dissident. And it is the, the privilege to get to be hodlers. And they're not the ones who are the users. The users are the dissidents and they're the, they're the um, disprivileged people. And that is, that's just really interesting to me that there's sort of this caste money system that's arisen out of it. and. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself one of those users, right? I'm not one of those underprivileged people who can't have a bank account. I mean, you kind of are. Um, but, yeah. but, but that's, that's the thing. Like there are users and then there's me. And I was documenting the life of users because nobody seemed to know who they were. They were easy to find, by the way. They aren't hard yeah. to find. They'll tell you who they are. You know, they'll, I'm disenfranchised or I'm, you know, uh, unbanked or whatever the hell you want to say, or I'm a drug dealer. Like you learn the keys, you learn the keywords. And it was funny because like early on you talk to somebody and, you know, after about three minutes, you go, oh, you're a drug dealer. Do you know about Bitcoin? Oh my God. I know everything about Bitcoin. Yeah, of course. Um, but you, you can't have that conversation with everybody. And like, 
it was it was a stereotypical like yeah i have to use it every day i use it and that was different than the average person who like would incidentally know about it or not at all yeah well i i think like that's such a small proportion right now like uh drugs and stuff like that compared to all not of the users well, you know, we still, it's still the hodlers, like the hodlers can hodl, but like the people that are spending it, using it every day, it's still the same thing. It's dissidents and disenfranchised. Sure. Well, and, and you. <laughs> and me. There's all, yeah. Well, there's, um, but there's a, that's a, a smaller proportion though. Like I just feel that that's, that's a smaller proportion. Well, who's, who do you think is like regularly spending their Bitcoin? Oh, well, I, I know for a fact, and this is like if you look at local Bitcoin's data and Paxful data, there are underprivileged people in countries where they don't have access to financial services and whatever. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I'm with you on 100%. But there's also a big part of the pie that are people in London. You know what I'm trying to say? What are, they, what are they doing with it? Oh, they're just holding it, right? Or they're just like, oh, let that's, me buy but That's something. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. holding it is a privileged position. Oh, yeah. You're, I agree. you're not... You're, that's not a that's not a person who's utilizing it every day, right? It's it's not being exchanged by them on a daily basis. They're rarely transacting in it. There are, there are groups of people out there that transact in it every single fucking day, and they don't give a, they don't give two shits about any of the debates that we have. They don't care about block size. They don't care about Ethereum. They don't care about Monero or Stellar or Ripple. They just want Bitcoin, and they they need it every day. And those are the disenfranchised and they're the dissident. And those are the two kinds of people that really need it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you. And me, yes, of course. I mean, yeah. All right. All right. So uh, I don't know where this is going to go, but when you were in London here, there was this moment where we were sitting in the tube station with Danny Brewster going to my meetup. And, uh, well, you like watches a lot, right? And you yeah, I do. I love about watches. watches. And you started explaining to me how you really like your Rolex because it represents really a lot of things because you see, never mind the fact that it just tells the time, but never mind the craftsmanship that goes into it. Never mind the engineering that goes into it. Never mind that there's something on your fucking hand that somehow converts the energy, the kinetic energy, and it tells you the precise time. Never mind. You start talking about all these things this incredible way. And I just go like, dude, give me a fucking break, you pretentious asshole. <laughs> Use a fucking phone. And after all these years, you know, I've, um, I, I understand what you meant by that. And let me tell you why. Because you are a connoisseur of a watch, right? Yes. You, you are someone who spends so much time into that, that you understand abstractly what it means, philosophically what it means, technically what it means, engineering, and, why, and you also have a special relationship, what it means to you, right? So you're a connoisseur. Right. So anything I would bring up about watches, it, it means so much to you that it's an incredible thing. Well, I think a Bitcoiner is a connoisseur of value. Because yes. let me tell you why. Value is this abstract concept, right? That's what value is. And it, well, it doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't exist, right? But somehow Bitcoin is this tool that transforms this abstract concept in, the, in something that exists in the real world. So a Bitcoiner is, has the best taste in value. As you have the best taste in watches, which is acquired, which requires to spend a lot of time, a Bitcoiner has the best taste in value. Yeah, so I think that's actually, I think that, that's actually very, so, so uh, 
the, the watch the watch discussion, if I recall, it was in fact couched in the discussion about taste. And uh, I, I, I like to have the discussion about taste because taste is an interesting thing that people, it's intangible, it's, it's hard to understand. And people think that, um, you know, taste doesn't exist or taste doesn't matter. And I think taste is really interesting because taste is something that you're right, you have to cultivate and be a connoisseur of something in order to develop. So for me, I, I do like watches. Um, my taste in watches uh, grows and develops each year as I think about them and, and, and learn more about them. And, and that's, I think, a really cool thing is that I could sit there with somebody, discuss a watch, and, uh, and discuss why I think that watch is neat or why I don't think that watch is neat um, or why that's not the watch for me, but it's the watch for that person or something like that. And I, it's the same thing with art, right? Like you look at art and you're like, that art is beautiful or that art isn't. Uh, people that like certain art, like you'll have a discussion with them and you'll say like, uh, you know, uh, Rothko is, is beautiful, right? Uh, I think that McCormick really likes Rothko's for some reason. And they just look like splotches to most people. But a lot of what you do is with art is you learn the story behind it. You learn its place in the movement. Um, you learn its importance to the people that looked at it and, and how it drove discussion and the movement forward. And paint on a canvas has that story. Watches have stories like that. Um, you know, they're, they're very interesting little mechanical pieces that are amazing little uh, little pieces that tell near perfect time. I just think that that's so neat. Um, and they're analog, which I think very much connects me at least to the analog world and slows things down a little bit for me. And I think also for me as somebody who's regularly sitting at a desk and working, this sort of like sense of time for me is very important because you can lose yourself in your work and not be pulled back from it and not be like reminded of the fact that you are currently living your life and that you need to sometimes stand up and do something different or enjoy something or look at something or whatever. So for me, the time element matters a lot. Um, I actually have my computer announce the time to me even so that I can make sure that like I know what time it is uh, at all times. Like I know that like when the hour has come so that I can, I don't sit there for like 12 hours and do one thing only and never, never do anything else. Right. I, Cause I can get lost in that. So, you know, the cultivation of taste, I think, takes a long time, and I think you're right. I think that Bitcoin is uh, is value, and Bitcoiners are connoisseurs of value. We've thought a lot about, or could be connoisseurs of value, some are not, but we've thought a lot about value and thought about what the best way to hold it is. And uh, sometimes it's fiat, sometimes that's Bitcoin, sometimes that's you know equities, sometimes that's bonds, but. I think you're right. I think Bitcoiners have a better understanding of all of those options than anybody else. That's very interesting. I like that thought. And you know why I liked it so much? And again, that it, it, like, it felt like I was on this journey all these years, you know, and, and I, at one point I realized this, you know, I, I used to date this girl and her dad was into wines. She, he was like fucking crazy with wines. And he, if you would take a sip of the wine, the guy would fucking tell you at what angle. I'm really serious. At what angle the light would hit the grave? That's how obsessed he was with this, right? Now, it wasn't precise, but he had such a deep understanding that he could tell you where this would happen. And I feel that's what a real Bitcoiner is. And that's what Bitcoin Essential was about. When I click send one Bitcoin from my address to your address, you can go and understand what's happening, what's happening behind this whole thing here, 
which happens in the real world and what was the motivations and the market dynamics, but you can also go back as much as you can and understand like to the consensus point and then understand what technically is happening there. So yeah, that's why I think like that's what a Bitcoiner is. And that's why the show is so fucking important to make me understand this. And I think that's not happening anymore now. I think they're not people trying to cultivate the taste, the taste like this. They're here, they're here just to run a node. And that's a big part of it. But you're not going to be a Bitcoin. You're not going to have, you're not going to evolve. You're just getting the static thing where they have this dynamic thing of what a Bitcoiner is. Yeah. You know, I've, I've noticed too that the journey in Bitcoin has been like a little bit stilted. It's different now. People aren't coming in like hearing all of the claims and de- like a lot of the claims have been made and sorted out. So, I mean, I think that's a thing is like the mechanics of Bitcoin are something that most people will not have to or care to ever understand. And that's fine, but it's, it makes it a lot less interesting. Like, I, I think that you're going to have a lot less like being passionate about Bitcoin is going to be sort of eventually like being passionate about the wires laid for the Internet or something like that. It's going to be very, it's going to be an obscure interest and people won't understand why it's something that is important. You know, they're, they're like Bitcoiner, you know, there's a story of the free bricklayers and they ask him, what do you do? I lay bricks. What do you do? I'm building a church. What do you do? I'm building the house of God. And I think I, I hold Bitcoin because it's such a personal important thing for me. I hold it like so, so up that if you want to be a Bitcoiner, you need to answer you're building the house of God. You kind of have the other answers. And, and, and I feel that no one is trying to do that anymore. I feel no one understand there's even, there's even this level there, you know, and, and I'm, I'm angry about it. I'm fucking angry and I don't like it. Well, you I, should count yourself lucky that you're one of the people that gets to answer it that way. Cause I, I don't think that it's important that everybody has that level of understanding. And, um, I, I don't, you know, at some point your knowledge is going to be interesting and obscure and unimportant. <clears throat> you know, it'll be important to you and to the people that know you have it. And you'll find at times that it will give you a leg up. But, you know, the internet, for example, just works, right? And uh, there's not a lot of people anymore who understand um, what teenagers who are routing emails back in the 90s understand, right? You no longer have those issues. And uh, Bitcoin's going to be like that. It's going to, it's just kind of becoming part of our everyday infrastructure and i think that's really a cool thing to have watched and to have been one of those kids routing emails in the 90s but for something different and for something i think that's very very important and going to become more and more important as time goes on um well i guess we can end it on this one here man uh awesome. th- thanks a lot i really appreciate you know you doing this thing and uh, you know trooper actually- it's always a pleasure <laughs> well th- thank you very much um i guess we can start it's two two hours it felt like it was two minutes to be honest with you. Yeah, um, can, I, uh, go on. Can, I, can I do the side on? Oh, please do so, of course. Yeah. But this is John Seth chunking up the deuce of the south. The mass has ended. Go in peace. St. Catherine, pray for us. All right, there you go. <laughs> That's an ending. <laughs>